Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Murray-Brown. And I'm John Sonia. In the first nine episodes, we've talked about politics and culture in the age of anger. We've asked whether pop music is dead. And we've asked how culture can possibly stand up to a problem like Donald Trump. We've also covered the important issues of hugger, Beyonce and Middle Eastern cooking. And today we're going to be talking about the culture-defining millennial TV show, Girls. It's just started its sixth season and we'll be discussing that later. We'll also be talking to one of Britain's leading contemporary artists, Ryan Gander. And we'll call the FT's Erica Solomon on the phone to hear how her lunch with the FT went with the Saudi comedian Fahad Al-Butari. So Girls is back. Love it or hate it, it's become the era-defining portrayal of millennial culture, one of the most important TV shows in recent years. We're lucky enough to have previewed the first three episodes. Yes, Girls for People Who Don't Know is an HBO show written, directed and starring Lena Dunham, who's now 30 but was only sort of 24 when the show was actually conceived. She She was was incredibly young. And it's the lives of these four girls out of college in the sort of stage of internships and unpaid work, living in Brooklyn, trying to make lives for themselves, trying to work out who they love, who they're friends with, what they want to do with their lives, where they're going. Very middle-class problems, it should be said. (laughs) They are incredibly middle-class problems, and that's something that we'll we'll get into later. Some of them very narcissistic. Yes, exactly. They are narcissists. They are four young narcissists finding their way in the world. And we have a clip from the second episode of series six in which Hannah Horvath, who is the Lena Dunham character and sort of alter ego, is talking to her friend Marnie, who is in this incredibly turbulent relationship. How did I get here? Like, this is just supposed to be like a fun little jaunt, you know? I don't think you should say jaunt. That's not a good expression to use. No, I mean, like, how the fuck did I end up here? I'm on a trip with my ex-husband, who I didn't know was a drug addict, which is the second time that's happened to me, by the way. You are so bad at knowing when people are high. Do you remember that time I drank Cizerp and you thought I had senioritis? (laughs) But seriously, Marnie, it can be pretty hard to have observations about other people when you're only thinking about yourself. I would know. So, John, what did you make of that? So, yeah, this is a scene which is kind of like has the hallmark traits of a good girls episode. Uh, relationships are going wrong. Friends are consoling each other. They're talking about themselves. There are tears. But you also get a sense that they are super, super close and that they will always be friends. They will always be there for each other. There's a self-involvement and also a selflessness there, which is, you're exactly right, is the kind of hallmark of girls, I think. And it's, what- that, it's that fine line which people... Some people find it really infuriating and other people don't. But it's the yes, yeah, the self-involvement that gets people so much in yeah. one of the first shows to really unapologetically just put that on our TV screens. So these first three episodes of the new series are absolutely amazing, especially episode three. Yeah, episode three. Episode three is brilliant. She, Hannah, the Hannah character, goes to the flat of a famous and quite wealthy writer and she confronts him about a piece that she's written about him having possibly unconsensual relations with college students. And it's this really interesting conversation that takes the place of the whole half an hour episode. There's just one character, it's Hannah, and there's just one location, his flat. And they discuss things like consent and power imbalances between men and women. And it really, I I don't know how you feel, but to me, I felt like in this 
series, and particularly in episode three, Lena Dunham is saying lots of things that it's almost like this is her final chance to say these things from whether a woman should have pubic hair to things like consent. Like you say, she's tackling like one pretty serious issue in her own special way. You know, sexual consent, male privilege, media responsibility. Because the way she kind of attacks this guy is through a blog post, which kind of goes semi-viral. Yeah, there's lots about old and new media and social media. Yeah, so with, with this episode three, how did you feel after you'd seen it? I felt like this was Lena Dunham almost at her most serious. I mean, it was very funny, so... You know, there was there were lots of laughs and lots of brilliant, witty lines, as there always are in her writing. But I did I did have this sense that actually somehow Hannah and Lena were a bit closer than they had been in previous series. And I'm sure that will kind of change. And I think in a funny way, Hannah is sort of a punch bag. I mean, Lena Dunham dresses Hannah in like horrible clothes and she always <laughs> looks disgusting and she gets herself into ridiculous situations. We say that. Yeah, episode three, I do agree. It's kind of quite a hard hitting episode. But episode one of this new series is kind of almost the reverse. So basically, Hannah's just had her first article published by the New York Times. She's super happy about it. She meets up with a magazine editor who sends her off to a surf camp to write a piece about how posh white girls have infiltrated surf culture as they have done yoga. And that episode's very funny, like... It's a real skewering of a kind of social type, isn't it? Tons of nakedness, bad sex, great one-liners, you know, drunkness, drugs, very Everything we know from girls, basically. Like you're saying, even though it does feel like she has scores to settle from these first three episodes, there is still tons and tons of humour and silliness. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, John, you're a big fan of girls. I just wonder whether you're coming at it from a slightly different perspective as a man. I mean, is it something that you and your girlfriends talk about? Well, I don't know. What What's nice about Girls is that it's kind of obviously an all-female cast show, but it seems to come at ideas of femininity and friendship from such an original way, which I haven't really seen on TV before. As a man, well, I don't know, what I get out of it is how f- friendships are complex, how they're often not straightforward, how they're crazy, ridiculous sometimes, but how <laughs> often with your friends there is just something that keeps you being friends and you don't necessarily know what that is all the time. So we're going to discuss all of these things with two of our colleagues who we have invited on the pod this week, Horatia Harrod and India Ross, who both work on FT Weekend, and they're joining us to discuss some of these issues. And both of them are in their 20s and early 30s, so we are very, very much the target market. Horatia, India, thanks for joining us. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the legacy of girls. And one of the most uh, famous quotes from the whole uh, six seasons of girls came from the first episode in which an inebriated Lena Dunham says, I don't want to freak you out, but I think I may be the voice of my generation, or at least a voice of a generation. So, yeah, I think any conversation about girls begins and ends with that quote. It was, as you say, it was deeply ironic at the time, not meant to be taken 100% seriously, but... The entire value of the show and its legacy rests on that quote. And I remember at the time when the show came out, that was an incredibly contentious point that she'd made. And I remember me and my friends, it had a huge, huge reaction from among myself and my friends. And I remember thinking, this is a huge exaggeration. This isn't me. This woman can't define me. Looking back on it now, however, I am like... That was painfully accurate. And <laughs> I, it is abundantly clear to me and to, I think I can speak for a large number of people to whom this show applied, that she absolutely was the voice of her generation. She defined 
the millennial of the popular imagination. The millennial that we now know to be this hugely lampooned caricature, almost to the point of cliché, she was pretty much the first person to identify that kind of person. And yet, it's true, like, that quote was attacked so much by critics, because I think a big thing with girls is that people don't draw a distinction between the characters in girls and their real-life characters. Everyone assumes that the girls you're seeing on TV is actually them. And I guess it is to an extent, but that's kind of one thing people have found a big problem with in viewing this show. Horatio, what do you think? Yeah, I think another thing that people tend to forget when they get involved in all the kind of Marxist, structuralist, sociological, feminist deconstructions of it is that it's essentially a comedy and (laughs) it is extremely funny. When we talk about her defining the millennial generation, it's not in the sense that she's this kind of mystical snowflake narcissist character. It's that she's commenting on that and it's always with ironic distance and humour. I think people have got really confused with the persona of Lena Dunham and the character of Hannah Horvath and they can't separate those two things so we get into this very muddy water critically. She's much more straight down the line kind of millennial stereotype in her real life. In her art she's got a lot of distance. I think it's interesting to go back a bit and actually kind of compare girls to Sex and the City, which feels so different and so dated compared to this. I'm hearing the theme tune in my head. (laughs) It's referenced in the first, uh, the very first pilot episode of Girls. Shoshana has a big poster of Sex and the City and she says to Jessie, you know, which character are you? And Jessie doesn't, you know, she's way too cool for Sex and the City. She's never seen it before. But I think it's very, it's very, very different because there's nothing actually very aspirational about girls. These are not people you particularly want to be or even really right. be friends with. They're kind of unlikable narcissists. Yeah, they don't I They mean, don't care about being likable. They don't really care about what clothes they're wearing. Yeah, but yeah. So you don't really want their life. You don't. They don't live in some amazing, cool downtown apartment and have a job writing a column. They're kind of struggling like everyone yeah. else is. Well, Lena Dunham went to HBO and she said, you know, I'm not seeing any of my friends represented on TV. And like that was right. kind of one of the reasons she wanted to do the show. Retroactively, Girls makes Sex and the City type shows look absurd. And it constantly <laughs> makes joking reference to them, as you said in the first episode. I mean, Shoshana is like a ridiculous person. And <laughs> her loving of Sex and the City is evidence for how ridiculous she is in the show. I mean, it's Sex and the City in so many, not just its portrayal of women, but also like economically like how did Carrie afford that apartment with one column shoes? a yeah. week it was impossible yeah she, we're all journalists we know this is not going to happen <laughs> but yeah I mean it, in terms of its portrayal of women it, yeah just the female body it, seeing and the a female body, body like Lena Dunham's it's hard to remember now that that was really quite shocking in 2012 to see her body on screen and, right. and in the new season which is I guess why we're talking about this today first episode for those that haven't watched it yet straight in with a lot of <laughs> Lena so Dunham nakedness I don't think we've seen any famous person's body as much, as much. I feel like I know it intimately I know too it. intimately I know better than my own body I would right. need like, I know all the tattoos I just don't want to think about it but it's amazing it's an amazing thing and it's incredible when you read commentary and I'm talking about below the line commentary not the kind of highfalutin think pieces but 90% of the comments on the show are about absolutely vicious commentary about her body and how it shouldn't be seen on television which it may be my point of view on this may be childish but I do think the fact that it provokes such a strong reaction is is the justification for showing it continuing to show it and I think what's wonderful is that 
her body is is constantly on show and she does, you know, it's gratuitous in the sense that she will start a scene with her taking her top off and getting into bed. It's mm. like, well, we could have just started in bed, <laughs> but we didn't. We saw her take the top off. It's actually, it's not only below the line comments. I remember, well, I don't remember, I remember reading recently, after the first season aired, years ago in 2012, um, there was actually an article in Art Forum, which is pretty, like, you know, high-minded stuff, and there was, uh, the critic there was kind of banging on about why we need to see so much of Lena Dunham's body. So, like, you know, it's definitely not only below the line. Because, I mean, it's, it's adding to a kind of art history in a sense. Like, mm. yeah. male artists have depicted women for so long and actually women haven't even depicted women for that long in art. And in TV, this was genuinely new and it's yeah. so recent. It's kind of incredible. I think that portrayal of women also, it really shone a light on how masculine television specifically had been up until that point because we were already well into this kind of so-called golden age of TV. But it was only at this point that we realised, oh my God, every one of these shows we love so much was by a man and apparently a you know, sort of hyper-masculine, very sing- singular, visionary man and about similarly a hyper-masculine protagonist. You know, we had Don Draper and Walter White and Tony Soprano and this was the first show by women about women that really broke through into the culture. And what's kind of telling is that there have been so many shows following on from girls we've had broad city we've had fleabag orange is the new black but every single one has seemed really authentically radical which i think just shows how few authentic depictions of women there were previously yeah to think about this representation of women one of the things that girls has obviously been criticized for quite a lot is that it's it is quite a narrow world it's it's representing an almost entirely white female world Horatia, what's your kind of take on this question of diversity? Yeah, it's it's difficult. And, uh, you know, Lena Dunham has been incredibly apologetic and obviously the whole experience of being critiqued in this way. You know, when she originally wrote this show, she was 23. So it's been this kind of learning experience. Tanahasi Coates wrote a great piece about this right at the beginning of, of the run. He pointed out that broadness of vision in in a kind of artistic production isn't necessarily the best thing. His point was you need lots of narrow worlds to appear on television, all of them drawn accurately. They're useful in their specificity and they're valuable for that reason because it's a fully understood world. So is he saying this in kind of defence of girls? In defence of girls, yeah. That's kind of surprising because he's generally, I love him, but he's generally quite a miserable... Yeah, yeah no, he was quite... <laughs> but what he's saying, I mean, I completely agree, and I think increasingly that is the case. There are more and more of these. There is a greater diversity of narrow worlds. I don't think the diversity criticism of girls was valid at all. I think that was part of the point. It, yes, it's terrible that they have exclusively rich white friends, but that's just one of many terrible things that well, were... Because they made all their friends at college and then moved together. Right, and, and I think Brooklyn. it's very true. I mean, I think these groups of rich white girls they don't have any black friends often. I mean, you know, I can't speak for them, but I think that is quite possible and quite possibly authentic. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Lena Dunham and her friend group, that may well have been the case. Yeah, and um, she, she's actually said, um, quote, you know, I've been thinking so much about sort of representing weirdo girls and chubby girls and strange half-Jews that I'd forgotten there was an entire world of women who were being un- underserved, which is kind of true. And her, her attempt to address that, I think it was in the second season with, like, her love interest, that it, just... It was really ooh, pointed. And, that was bad. Yeah. It was like a kind of United yeah. Colours of Benetton, I right. thought, where you have, like, one person from each race and it just looks so contrived. But, but I think why should... Sorry, I think why why 
should she have to represent everyone? She was mm. she was painting a very specific picture of a very specific kind of person, and I think she did that very successfully. I think what some people would say though is that you know Girls was trying to be different. It was trying to be different from the shows that had not been realistic, which had gone before. And actually, perhaps it's unrealistic that her world is so white. I mean, that there is this yeah. criticism on both sides, and that she's been accused of a kind of whitewashing, which I think is perhaps going too far but I, I could understand that it was disappointing particularly to women of colour watching watching this show and not seeing themselves represented there because actually Lena Dunham does have friends who aren't white you know yeah. I'm yeah. sure Hannah Horvath is probably yeah. people who yeah. aren't white as well so it's a and question of kind of verisimilitude I guess. And this show is set in New York City which is obviously right, one right. of the most multicultural capital cities in the world. Yeah. So. I guess you don't want to get too much into like fact checking a comedy but I do think <laughs> that it was interesting the New York Times did a brilliant thing of mapping the whole of America and they did it by broke it down by race and when you look at New York City yes it's very diverse in one sense but it's extremely segregated in terms of the areas so like Greenpoint in Brooklyn where quite a lot of it is set is or really is a white enclave you know mm. we're not living in a post-racial america that's clear yeah so i don't think it's completely insane but i do think when you get to the point of you know that i'm looking up the statistics for population in greenpoint this is ridiculous it's a you know it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a comedy so <laughs> but i think i really don't think we should get too deep into it but i also think this analysis is perhaps not real it's not really lena dunham's fault it might it's more the fault of the commentators who have said, who have labelled this a show that defines this entire generation, when in fact she never said that. I mean, yeah. she did it ironically yeah. at one point, but you know, <laughs> she, but you know, they've ex- people have extrapolated and said you can't define every twenty-something in uh, New York City at one time this way. But yeah, I don't think she male ever... comedies don't get right, held up to the right, same exactly. standard. Also, so that, yeah. it feels very unfair in that sense. Yeah. I think. it's also kind of. It's a, bit of a cliche about a victim of its own success if it had stayed as this kind of indie show you know I'm sure no one would have been talking about these issues but it just totally exploded and and this was such a sign of the times with TV because what's crazy is that Lena Dunham had actually kind of made Girls two years previously with that indie film Tiny Furniture Mm. which is essentially Girls the movie which was very more nakedness more more nakedness right (laughs) which which was very well received but made zero impact on popular culture because for whatever reason you know indie cinema was is not a thing that kind of punctures the consciousness like tv and and now and yeah as you say a victim of its own success being made into a tv show becoming this enormous phenomenon that that became an entity unto itself beyond the show and yeah and i think that's its downfall as much as its great success should we talk about the legacy of girls we've kind of touched on it i mean india what do you think what are the shows that have really sort of been born out of girls i mean i think it's it's direct descendants are shows by women about women and specifically these are pretty radical women often like the kind of people who perhaps I don't know if this is a stretch but would not have got been able to get shows made in the past people like Jill Soloway who made Transparent the amazing show about the transgender woman Genji Kohan who made Orange is the New Black which has shown a broader spread of women than anyone could ever have imagined would be on TV it's still radical and they just keep coming uh, just more and more and each one feels so fresh you know even Fleabag which came out in the past years which was still the British really BBC yeah right and it's even come I actually saw a show there's a show coming out on HBO next week called Big Little Lies which is about rich housewives in California which sounds like territory that's been trodden a thousand times but it is such a radical portrayal of them that I really think wouldn't have existed it's a really critical a really nuanced look at 
these kind of women and that there would never have been previously these narrow worlds that are now being explored in such depth and with such subtlety. And the show that I always try and encourage everyone to watch is Atlanta, which won the Golden Globe for Best uh, Comedy, I think. This year, the Donald Glover show, which is just the most incredibly subtle, understated portrayal of specifically black life in, in this city in America. And I think all these shows are, to a greater or lesser extent, direct descendants of girls. I think it was completely game-changing. It's interesting that, in a way, the kind of failings of girls, so like like the diversity thing, have then borne out shows like Atlanta. Yeah. There's Insecure, which right. is a kind of similar milieu to girls, but in LA, and mm-hmm. the girls are black. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of, you know, their kind of love lives and work lives and growing up. In a way, girls is kind of the failings of girls have kind of cracked open the possibilities for other makers of TV, I think. Yeah, and she's, Lena Dunham's always said that, you know, she's, I think, been incredibly gracious in the face of all of the criticism that she's received. And she's always said, you know, if we're part of starting this conversation about diversity on television, then that is an achievement in itself, even though it comes from a negative place. So guys, how do we think the final season of Girls is going to end? I am dying to find out. I I think it is not an overstatement to say that there is a generation of people, myself included, who is dying to see how this pans out. Arguably, the show could have ended a bit sooner than it has done. I I don't really know specifically what we're waiting to happen, but... Yeah, I think series three and four could have not been made. Right. (laughs) But that's just my personal view. How does this end? Do they get a job? Do they get it together? Are they going to grow up? Are they going to get their comeuppance for their terminal narcissism I, I'm, di- I'm dying to find out I, I don't think there will be any comeuppance I can't <laughs> see that coming at all Harish, no, what do you think? I, I agree I don't think that they're going to kind of straighten up in the final series but I, I, I think what one of the great joys of watching the show has been watching them develop because I mean they you know at the beginning Shoshana was a ridiculous character for example <laughs> she's really become a kind of favourite character with her yeah. strange sort of trip to Japan and discovering herself and she's become <laughs> a kind of stand-in in a way for us the viewers she's so fed up by the kind of narcissistic self-involved character of these people she's friends with and it's like when you're in your 20s and you do end up dropping some friends because they're (laughs) awful you realize uh i i actually really want to know what happens to her and ray as well who i I guess i was gonna say ray is my shoshana ray ray is the person who had just had enough of all of this from the start he was just like you guys are terrible (laughs) but i think um this applies to all tv shows but it's it's a really interesting thing that a tv show grows and has a life and is constantly in dialogue with its audience all the way through. And so it builds to this kind of incredible, very kind of self-aware moment of the the climax of a series. It's fascinating, that, you know, whether it's like the ending of Mad Men or the ending of Breaking Bad. These things are huge cultural events. And yeah, I hope she doesn't fluff it. Cool. So tune in, everyone. <laughs> so thank you, Teresa. And thanks, India. Thanks very much. Thanks. Hi, Erica. Hi. Hi, this is Griselda. I'm calling from the London office. Hi. Hi, Griselda. Hi, nice to speak to you. So, where are you right now? Um, I'm actually back in Beirut, which is my home base. But earlier in the week you were in Dubai, right? That's right. I went to Dubai to interview Fahad Al-Butaydi, the Saudi comedian. Sometimes comedians aren't funny in person. Sometimes they are. What, what was Fahad like? He was very friendly, very funny. Um, like, he has no problem 
uh, trotting out some of his favorite jokes from his routines. In what way does he kind of poke fun at Saudi society? Does he kind of take risks in that sense? Is he sort of getting a bit close to close to the bone there for, for some people? Well, yeah, I mean, this is actually one of my favorite parts of our conversation because I think um, a lot of people, when they assume that it would be the political stuff that was really the, the risk-taking, the part where he, like, it made any attempt to, to criticize politics. And to be fair, he doesn't actually approach that subject very much. But what he claims, and I kind of see where he's coming from, is that actually that's not the most daring humor to do in Saudi Arabia. The most daring thing is to do social critiques. So criticizing norms like the fact that women can't drive or the fact that Saudi Arabia doesn't have cinemas. These social norms that are technically not um, in the law. It's just sort of the way society has uh, developed because of the embrace of Wahhabi clerics who sort of have this deal with the government. Do you think he upsets people with his comedy, or is or is, he, is he generally quite well received over there? So he definitely upsets people. Um, when I started googling him in Arabic, um, preparing for our meeting, um, <laughs> I mean, one of the first things that comes up are all these like, you know, why he's like destroying Islam or Saudi culture, or like how he was in a pornographic scene in a movie because he appears in his boxers by a swimming pool. I mean, there's some really ridiculous, it's almost funny kind of stuff that people are writing about him. Um, but that said, he's very popular. Um, he sort of got his start on YouTube, actually. So we know him because of his stand-up comedy that he did, which he does both in English and Arabic. But probably most Saudis, uh, your average Saudi, would know him through his YouTube channel called Le Yaksad, which is like put a lid on it in, in the Saudi dialect. And like he does these like funny little sketches about where he kind of pokes fun at stuff about their, their society or the Arab world. And it has like I think uh, I'm not sure how many followers he has. One of his spin-off channels has a million followers. He has like two million followers on Twitter. So he's very much one of these sort of social media stars. Um, and that's where his comedy really kind of reaches the masses, if you will. So where did you meet and what did you eat? So actually we, we went to a really extravagant kind of restaurant and if I wasn't in Dubai, I probably would have assumed there was something wrong when he sent me the locations and it seemed to be in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> and sure enough, it was uh, this restaurant that's like on this really, really long pier out into the uh, Persian Gulf. It's called Pier Cheek. Right. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yes, and uh, it, was, it was a beautiful restaurant. 360 degree views of like the sparkling blue waters. It was, it was quite picturesque. It sounds very um, Dubai. Very, very fancy. Yes. <laughs> so it was all very, very Dubai, yeah. So it sounds very nice. Um, and, and how was the food? Yeah. What, what did you order and what did he eat? We, uh, it, it's, a, it's a fish restaurant. And so the waitress came by and was like, oh, you know, um, I see it looks like you're eyeing the prawns. And he goes, oh, no, if, if I was paying, that's what I'd be getting. But <laughs> he's paying, so I'm getting the lobster. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, no. And I, it, it was like a 490 dirhams, which was like $130. So just a lobster. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I read that he started um, doing sort of local stand-up gigs when he was a student in Texas. Did he say anything about sort of what it was like being an Arab comic in post-9-11 America? Yeah, we talked a lot about that, actually, um, and, and, and about, you know, being in, in America and specifically in, in conservative places like Texas. He first started out, like, trying to tell blonde jokes, he said, <laughs> like, uh, on, on the stage, and it just didn't work. He failed miserably. He was sure he was, like, never going to attempt doing comedy again, and then, um, for whatever reason, he, he got kind of more curious about it, so he started watching a lot of 
the famous stand-up comedians and realized that the thing they had in common was they, they usually delved into their personal lives. So he decided to go back and sort of face it um, up front. You know, I'm this Saudi guy in Texas, uh, and he does that noise, and then people would just crack up. Like, they got it immediately because he was there right after 2001. Like, oh, man, this guy, that sucks to be Saudi and yeah. right now in, in the U.S. Um, and then, like, he just kind of built on that, and he said it was like this, you know, 180 degree turn, like, like people responded immediately when he started just really actually focusing on himself. I asked him about um, what it was like to live in Texas as well. And he said that actually he found that he quite quickly adapted to dealing with Texans because he kind of felt like he ha his culture had a lot of the same conservative values, you know, like he talked a lot about like the matriarchal grandmother who kind of runs family events and, uh, you know, conservative views about religion and so on. Huh, that's so interesting. Well, Erica, thank yeah. you so much. I think that's all we have time for. But um, I look forward to the piece. He sounds like an, an interesting guy. Yeah, hopefully it'll be good. Great. Okay. Sounds Thanks very good. much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Next up, we're going to hear from one of Britain's most interesting visual artists working today. His work spans all sorts of media, so he makes sculpture, installation, film. In fact, it's quite hard to kind of summarise his work, isn't it? Because he does really so hard. many different kinds of things. People often call him like a cultural magpie. People often say his art is actually more storytelling. Yeah, exactly, because it doesn't necessarily have a visual element all the time. At Documenta, for example, a couple of years ago, his work was just simply a breeze kind of blowing through one of the main hallways. <laughs> so he's quite a kind of trickster, I think. And one of his most famous pieces, or one of his best-known works, is something he exhibited at the Venice Biennale in 2011. He, it's a model of him, and he's fallen out of his wheelchair, which is kind of tipped over behind him. And this caused a bit of a stir, although, as he says in the interview, he's not interested in making disabled art. He's not really interested in kind of talking about disability in an obvious way. He's just really an artist, and quite an eccentric, I think. Yeah, he's pretty forthright about that, yeah. which taps into his his whole ethos and his whole character, how he is quite an outsider. Like, he didn't study in London. He got rejected by all the famous art colleges here, such as Goldsmiths. Yes, yeah, so he ended up studying in Manchester, and he didn't enjoy it very much, and he then went to the Netherlands, to the Rijksacademy in Amsterdam, and I think that's where he really kind of found himself. So he does really see himself as being quite outside of the London art establishment. He has this kind of outsider status, or that very much comes across when he speaks and gives talks. I mean, having said that, he's he is incredibly successful and really quite popular as well. He had a show at Listen Gallery in New York last autumn, and he's had these kind of massive museum shows all around the world. I think recent ones have been in Vancouver, Melbourne, Singapore. Yeah, and he's about to have his first ever show in China at the CC Foundation in Shanghai. The show's called Human, Non-Human, Broken, Non-Broken. So yeah, he has a lot going on at the moment. So here's Ryan Gander when he came into the studio to talk to us. When people ask me what I do, I, depending on who it is, sometimes I lie to avoid further questioning. Because if you say you're an artist, you get interrogated and you dig yourself into a massive hole. I grew up in Chester in the northwest of England. I wouldn't say that my parents weren't massively into art. I would just say that, you know, my parents are middle class, middle England, like the majority of the country. And 
the majority of the country aren't, isn't into art. So it's more of a norm rather than something that's different, you know. I think art in Britain is incredibly elitist. Culturally, it doesn't, you know, it's not easily absorbed through our culture somehow. In comparison to the time I've spent in Europe and seeing the Belgians and the French and the Dutch, the way that, you know, it's, it's more part of the fabric of society. I mean, I used to make a lot of art when I was really young. I had a studio in the garage of our my parents' house. And me and a friend called Max, when all the other kids would go out to the pub, we'd, we'd spend Friday and Saturday nights. A bit sad, really, to, <laughs> sitting in this garage, painting and making sculptures and stuff. And we must have only been 17, 18. I was categorically lucky to not study in London. Well, I guess there's a the, the history of contemporary art in Britain is centred in London, and also commercially, if you want to sell your pig, you have to take it to the market, and there's no denying that, and you'd be stupid to argue otherwise. But I'm not sure that the dirty ambition that I've seen to go hand-in-hand hand with London art schools is productive for research and development of artistic languages. In a sense, that's one of the reasons why I live in Suffolk, because I don't need the distractions of an opening and a dinner every night, and I didn't want to turn into a person who is my age, standing outside a gallery with a warm bottle of beer on a freezing cold night. should be the other way around. I made a work once for the, that was shown at the Venice Biennale, which was a miniature figurine of me that had fallen out of my wheelchair, and I honestly didn't think that anybody would think that this was related to disability or happening to be in a, in a wheelchair at all. And of all the works that I've made, I would say that it is the one work that I wouldn't have made if I'd known the repercussions of that. Purely because I happened to use a wheelchair but some people happen to wear glasses and some people, I don't know, happen to like wearing women's underwear and that's just the nature of the world. And also then you get people who enjoy or are interested in the fact that I happen to be in a wheelchair but none of my work is about being in a wheelchair. That work for Venice was about tragedy. So I would have made sculpt the miniature figurine of myself without a wheelchair if I happened to be able to walk. When I'm asked, which artists do you like, it's not necessarily artists that are the answer to that question. It's just people that are agile thinkers and people where the physicality or the byproduct of their thinking is diverse. A lot of contemporary artists all around the world make the same work. 
every single day. Picasso had some saying about uh, all artists make madeleines, the French cake that you know French eat for breakfast, but they they all make the same mad shaped madeleine every morning. Where he wanted to be an artist, where he'd redesign this tin, which would make a different shaped cake every day. By definition, repetition is not creative, you know. And the other thing is, like, I thought I'd work in a factory or in a shop doing the same thing every day. And yet I have this amazing job where I can do whatever I want when I wake up in the morning. I can, like, smoke an eel or, like, anything, anything in the world. So why would I just do the same thing every day? I guess also there's a weird... In terms of the art market, there's some kind of... It's almost suicidal to avoid repetition or to avoid stylistic signature because, obviously, things that people recognise, collectors, museum directors, people that buy art, and, you know, I don't mind talking about selling art and, you know, swapping artworks for cash because, essentially, cash means that I can make more art. And the only thing that I love doing is making art. So a lot of artists avoid the subject of any commerciality of art, which I find a bit like hippie, lefty, weird. You know, because what would you do? Just live in a squat and say you're an artist, but not be able to afford gouache. A good way of talking about good art that's magical being hard to talk about. A good way into that is to sort of reflect on how social media is killing art. Because what you see is uh, elevation or fetishization of things that are aesthetically alluring. And, you know, good art can be ugly and disgusting, or it can make you jealous, it can make you angry. But these are the things that when you're on the bus on the way home, you're still thinking about them. The thing with social media is it doesn't give you time and it doesn't... Everything that you see on social media is superficial and fast. I've been at home most of the year, which is good. So there's been I like being at home a lot, um, but I've I've got a sort of tour of Asia, and I go to China. I've never been to China before. I'm going to Shanghai. I'm doing a show at. There's a private collector there that owns a museum um, called the CC Foundation. So it's that's my first show in China, which is quite exciting. At the CC Foundation, there's uh, there's a, I think it's five works in the show, and one of them is a new installation, which is. It's a little funnel at the top of a wall in the room and it spits out bull bearings. So it's tiny, shiny steel balls roll down this, like, gutter spout. And then they drop out into the room onto a very plush grey carpet, but they come out in a random order. So you're always in expectation of the next one. And when they hit the floor, you get, you get this rolling down the steel funnel noise and then you get this hitting of the floor and then the next one pinging on the next one. So it's kind of, it's actually a really 
meditative zen kind of work it's really uh, hypnotic to watch at the end of every evening all the balls as i think it's 22,000 balls because it goes all day uh, they're all cleared up and they're all taken back into a machine the other side of the wall um, and put back in the machine for the next days so there's this weird futility to it it's like this circle of utter uselessness I'm not sure whether any of it's... Oh, I never really elevate it to that stature, to be honest. And they never seem finished, the things that I make, so... I mean, I guess when you go to a museum and you see your work, you know that it's art, but... In a way, it doesn't really matter if it's art or, or something else. It just matters whether it's interesting or not. You can read Erica Solomon's Lunch with the FT with Fahad Albutari at ft.com. Next week, we'll be speaking to Ella Woodward, otherwise known as Deliciously Ella. Everything else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and John Sonia. And our music is composed and produced by Fatum. Please get in touch with us and let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter or email us at everythingelseatft.com. You can subscribe to everything else at all the usual places, including iTunes, Stitcher and Acast, as well as at ft.com slash everything else.